listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. that some of my best conversations, uh, Dharma questions and so forth, tend to arise um, in the locker room uh, of my health club. I guess I'm kind of like the token Buddhist in an otherwise non-Buddhist organization. <laughs> um, uh, but it's, it, they're, for some reason, it's the, the conversations that end up happening in the locker room tend to be quite fun. I also happen to work out usually uh, at the same time as uh, a Presbyterian minister, one of the local Presbyterian ministers here, and uh, another individual who used to be a rabbi. And so when the three of us get together, it's just like, it's really kind of cool. Um, uh, and no fist fights yet. Um, uh, but but it's, it's actually quite fun. And one of the questions that, that came up this past week was, well, okay, so like... What's it about? What's Buddhism about? And it was an interesting question on a couple of different levels, none the least of which was that I, um, while my training is Buddhist, uh, I don't know that I feel terribly comfortable calling myself a Buddhist. I'm certainly not, uh, I'm not a lineage holder. I don't have, um, uh, if you will, a, a credential as a priest or anything like that. I'm just a guy. Uh, and uh, I was raised in a, in a home where Christianity, um, while we may not have gone to church all the time, we certainly uh, had an ethical structure that was uh, deeply Christian in its orientation and so forth. So the question arose, yes, you know, so what's it, what's it about? And it's about questioning. It really is about questioning. Instead of, instead of it being about answering, it's about questioning. It's about wonder as opposed to knowing or fixating. It's about not knowing. It's about getting very, very comfortable in that space of, huh. It's about wonder, as opposed to, yep. Uh, and the idea that uh, the, the Buddha is an external entity that any of us can... Um, uh, you know, pray to or anything becomes quite, uh, quite anathema to what's really being taught, which is why we get the expression, if you meet a Buddha along the path to enlightenment, kill the Buddha. Uh, it's not outside of you. Buddha is not outside of you. So anytime we look at Buddha being external, it's wrong. It's not Buddha. Okay? Buddha is not just outside of us, nor is God. The minute, change the phraseology, the minute you see God as being outside of you, kill God. Now, fortunately, there aren't any clouds in the sky, and the chance of me getting struck by lightning at this point are slight. <laughs> but what we all can recognize here is that God, Christ, Buddha, any sacred teaching 
any awakened uh, sage is going to be pointing towards that exact experience that no matter what our tradition is at the non-dual what we would call end of the faith or the, the, the area of the faith that is really kind of at the furthest reaches of the teaching itself what we start to recognize is my goodness there isn't a separation there is only flow there is space and I am part of that space and that space is part of me there is a give there is a take there is a swinging door to our experience that's physicalized in breath opening closing that there is just this flow that we are indeed boundless even though we have all this sensory apparatus that tells us no 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 I'm in here everything else is out there which puts us in a situation where we want to go after things that we think will give us some type of pleasure and we want to avoid things that we believe will harm us it's not that the sense apparatus that we have is wrong it's that it uh, consistently gives us a partial viewing or partial experience of what's actually true so what to do well I was reminded by a friend of mine uh, the, the, the great, uh, great biblical saying be still and know that I am God is that Matthew? Does anybody know? Does anybody know where that actually is? Because if I was really sharp, I would have looked that up, right? I'm not. I'm kind of dull tonight. Um, <laughs> be still and know that I'm God. In our stillness, we start to recognize this boundless nature that we all actually are. We start to see the partial, and we start to see something beyond the partial. Together, our life unfolds with the suturing or integration of this infinite and finite with this one and also the many what's the natural experience when we are still and we know that we are a conscious expression of God the felt sense of that is not only joy but it's also something quite miraculous we also get this sense that we can be ultimately perpetually comfortable in our own skin that there really isn't anything to reach for out there that's going to make us any better make us feel any better that it's all within and in taking that journey that step inward that backward step I sometimes refer to it as kind of that step inside what starts to unfold indeed this comfort in our own skin as we start developing a comfort with everybody else in their skin as they are there's a tremendous surge of forgiveness that can happen here and I remember as a young practitioner having this very very interesting experience off the cushion during a Dharma talk where I kind of began to ask myself the question what would my life be like if I totally forgave myself
So I'm asking you, please don't answer. What would your life be like if you totally forgave yourself? What would your life be like if you actually felt comfortable in your own skin? If whatever nagging voice just quieted down, maybe started to smile. If whatever experience you had going on inside at one point that was really, really just tying you up suddenly began to unravel and uncoil, loosening a little bit that allowed for greater movement. What happens if right now you're dealing with a tremendous amount of pressure from yourself? What would happen if that pressure were somehow released? What would that feel like? I don't know. But I do know that the way to get there is to be still. If in your meditation practice you can get to a place where there is a true and honest observance of what's actually going on within the body, where there's a recognition of the inhalation and the exhalation, kind of as that swinging door, letting the universe in, letting it out, knowing that you are universe, knowing that you are whole, knowing that you are part of the many, and knowing that you're a a conscious representation and manifestation of a deep singularity. If you're in that space, all this stuff begins to unfold in some kind of cool ways. That's my encouragement. I would also warn you, do not take my word for it. This is your work. My work, such as it is in this quasi-formal setting, is to kind of just keep you on the path as best I can when you ask. When you allow your life to turn into more of a question as opposed to a series of answers. That relationship that you and I or you and every teacher that you have, either formal or informal, becomes one of, oop, hey, oop, good, good, good. oh, what does it feel like down there? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, now you're on the path again. Right? No one, as I always say, is going to enlighten you. No one will enlighten you. You will uncover that light that's always been shining within you. The more you are still, the more you know that you are God. So for a couple of years, we've threatened to come outside to do the Dharma talk, and we finally did it. So, so uh, thanks. Uh, in speaking about this idea, how practice ultimately is about questioning, about how ultimately we're trying to get comfortable in our own skin, Enough to where we can, through the extension of our being, begin to touch other lives, be able to affect positive change. Uh, we become agents of peace is a phrase I sometimes throw around. Um, one of the ways that we can best begin to 
kind of straighten that path out, or at least get on the path in kind of a true way, is to make sure that we recognize the meaning of... How do I want to put this most effectively? I'll just start rambling and hope that it comes out. Uh, what we want to make sure that we do is that we, recog- we recognize that all spiritual journeys of any kind of authenticity, of any kind of depth, are going to begin and then get accentuated by, they will become deepened by forgiveness. When we don't forgive, we are withholding. If you even think of the etymology of the words, to forgive is to literally surrender to. To withhold is to, you know, protect, guard, keep away from, right? And so when we're in a space where we actually can forgive self and other, at that point, at that moment, we've deepened our practice. The more we can forgive, the more we can deepen our practice. It doesn't stop. There's more to forgive. There's more to surrender. Okay? This is not to be confused with giving in. Okay? Giving in as, you know, can become pathological where we're in a space where we're not really liking the way we're treated, but, oh, wait, but the Buddhist teaching says, go ahead, just suck it up. Let them keep pounding on you or let, let life keep running itself all over you. That is an attachment, actually, that gets us into trouble. If we start looking at surrender as opposed to being opening, instead we look at it as a way of literally cowering, we've just blown it. So true forgiveness, true forgiveness is about letting go, okay? It's about surrender, surrendering to what is, as it is. It's also about making sure that we are available to the life as it presents itself. That we are not going through this experience withholding. That we, instead of being guarded, are in fact unguarded, undefended, open. Totally vulnerable. Amazing to think of it like that, but it's really, really powerful when we can develop kind of the steadiness in our practice to allow for that type of undefendedness to express itself through us. Well, once this undefended nature kind of starts happening, we are no longer at war. We're no longer shooting anything or anyone. We're no longer, rather brilliantly, uh, uh, this came up in our our retreat this past weekend out in Marin County, the idea, whenever we pull, pull an arrow from the quiver and let, let it go, there are two arrows that are being fired. Whenever we're firing at another, okay, we've got the first arrow that we always identify as going out towards to defend us against an attack. But ultimately, that arrow is two arrows. The second arrow is the one that comes back within. I don't want to mention his name because I don't want to embarrass him, but Lenny was the one who came up with that. And it was great. Oh. It's the second arrow. The second arrow. It's a brilliant metaphor. That it's the second arrow that really kind of cinches the uh, unconsciousness. 
it kind of throws it back at us. The more we attack, the counter is equally strong. So this brings up some really interesting stuff to consider when it comes to how is it that we can get comfortable in our own skin. So I'm just going to run through just kind of a brief, this is, this is a, a deeply oriented towards kind of a Western therapeutic approach, but I just want to kind of toss this your way because it corresponds with the Dharma, I think, quite beautifully. If we start looking at the way, the telltale signs of uh, uh, relationships that are in trouble between uh, you and another person, be they intimate or just collegial, familial, whatever, when you start looking at when they're really on the rocks, especially the intimate relationships, you can see this. They exhibit four characteristics, or as uh, um, uh, John Gottman, the uh, uh, psychotherapist up in, I believe it's Portland, what he articulates, is it, is it Seattle? It's in Seattle. Um, uh, he calls them the four horsemen. Okay? Criticism. Contempt, stonewalling. God dang it. <laughs> Criticism, defensiveness. Criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. When we start showing up to relationship with these as being the uh, you know the the undercurrent of of uh, what's going on, we've got a relationship that is on the rocks, according to Gottman. I think it's really and the research is phenomenal. I've brought this up before in Sangha, um, but when we start looking at it in terms of spiritual work, especially in relationship to this idea of the second arrow, every second arrow takes on one of those qualities that you see in the four horsemen. How critical are you of yourself? How contemptuous? Do you stonewall, or another way of putting that in terms of self-orientation, do you deny? Are you defensive? Are you always on edge? Are you paranoid? Are people always ready to attack? Are you always ready to attack yourself? In these spaces, you see all sorts of things uh, things arise. Joseph Weiss, another therapist, pointed out that uh, um, once that you look at the sum total of all this negativity that we throw inward, and what do we get? Guilt. And the guilt is the most powerful of all emotions at a personal level because it helps orient us inappropriately into horrible situations. Well, without getting too uh, therapeutic on anybody, I still think if we can just unpack these qualities real quickly they can become incredibly edifying when in terms of dealing with one's own experience what kind of voice do you typically hear is it critical do you hear a critical voice if you hear a critical voice inside your head coming at you do you ever hear one that's positive in child rearing you know they say bare minimum you got to have two to three positive comments for every one negative comment. Does that apply to you personally? Or is it just the chirp and chatter of something that's tearing at you? Your own voice. Are you contemptuous? Do you actually have nasty feelings about yourself? Do you go guilt? Do you have anger that you direct inward? 
that then you use to sometimes quietly and other times not so quietly to punish yourself. Do you punish yourself? Are you really hard on yourself? Okay? So it's not just the criticism, but now it's contempt. It's, ah, it's nasty. It's the internal sneer. Next, are you in denial of what's really going on? Do you avoid or do you face? Do you look away when actually you need to look at? Are you pretending? Are you being real? Pick your situation. These are great ways of exploring self. These are great ways of looking at our, our experience in really profoundly rich, powerful uh, powerful ways. Lastly, do you always feel like you're under attack? <laughs> Are you on edge? Are you tensing up all the time? About what's coming at you from within? Are you in the middle of a feedback loop, a feedback loop of continual internal strife? Are you uncomfortable in your own skin? If you're able to look at these kind of these questions, these ideas with a kind of an open heart, you're on the path. If you can just ask the questions, you're on the path. If you're on the path, you can be free of them. And what happens? Instead of having two arrows for every one that's fired, you set the bow down. You're no longer at war. There's nothing that needs to be gained, attained, used for insulation. There's no need to self-medicate. There's no need to reach for anything because everything is already there. So what is necessary? What happens when you are totally fulfilled? What happens when there's no fear? What happens when there is no internal criticism? There's no contemptuous behavior being directed within. You're no longer in any kind of denial and you're not defensive. What happens? that light that's always been there now has a chance to illuminate not just your own heart and mind they don't only become awake with that fire of enlightenment but every being that you touch every being that you touch <laughs> gets a dose gets a little inspiration is touched you have become helpful. And that's where the teaching keeps pointing us. In questioning, we can become really helpful. And so rather than that second arrow being thrown, being, uh, you know, being an, uh, a concomitant to that first arrow that's, that's, uh, that's launched, The second arrow, the first arrow, the bow itself, the archer, bow. They recognize that everything is an extension of who they've always been, that there really isn't a boundary between self and other. Therefore, there is no reason to attack anything. There is only a calling to open at deeper and deeper levels 
of forgiveness. Any questions? Yvonne. Sometimes I'll do something or say something, let's say with regard to parenting, and I don't know whether I'm doing the right thing or saying the right thing, and my internal mind will say, she shouldn't have said that, or maybe that wasn't the best way to be a good mother, or uh -huh. something like that. How can I be okay with whatever it is I might be doing or saying, and just be okay that... I did the best. That you did the best you could. Yeah. yeah, first of all, recognize that you're doing the best that you can. That's the first thing. It tends to loosen things up a little bit. I also think that there is one, one brilliant bit of componentry to the uh, uh, Catholic Church um, uh, is this idea of confession, where it will never be said, repeated, or anything. You go to another person that you trust... And you are able to put it out there. In putting it out there, what happens? It's now not something that you're hanging on to, right? You're no longer, it's not just yours. Now you're giving it up metaphorically to God, right? Now, there are all sorts of reasons why that, that ritual of confession freaks people out. And they're not into it. And it's also not something that's terribly common in uh, 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 Buddhism. And yet... The idea that we can honestly, and this goes to kind of the third thing, are you in denial or are you actually calling, you know, what's going on within? If you're not feeling like you handled something appropriately, is it possible for you to go back to the person that you uh, uh, were relating to when the mishandling occurred and confess it to them in a way that still allows you to, you know, feel like you're, you're not... Uh, you're, you're not giving in, but rather giving it up. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So this is why in it, whenever we confess something, depending on how skillfully we do it, when we confess something, we're actually putting it out there so that it can be watched. The watcher of that experience is no longer identified with the experience. It's let go of it. So what we've done is we've essentially cast it off now, it still may stick around close to us on the side of the riverbank or whatever, but eventually it can be something that, that sails on. So that's one way. Um, the other way is to just have those little encouraging words. I did the best I could. Yeah, I screwed that up. There are going to be more screw-ups, I'm sure. I did the best I could. If I cause damage, I'm going to make sure I at least call attention to the damage. You know, try to, try to undo any, anything that I may have done that uh, I, I can, at this point, fix. The flip of that, though, just to be clear, you don't want to be one of those people who apologizes for every single thing that he or she does, because then what are we doing? We're actually manifesting the guilt in the world. You know? In a way that's, that's not helpful. You ever met anybody like that? Who all they do is just they apologize the whole time about how awful they are? You know? That gets really kind of old. Um, so it's, and I guess I would say in, in the, in the, in relationship to the teaching that it's not, that person is probably not being as upright as they could be. 
not apologizing ever, that's not, a, that's not being upright. Apologizing all the time is kind of pathetic. That's not being upright. That middle space that involves kind of confessing, if you will, or at least engaging constructively with someone that you may have hurt, including your own sense of self. It's great practice. Mm-hmm. Yes, Joanne. Questioning and forgiveness with stillness. What, what do they have to do with that? Stillness, the, the way, the way I, I like uh, looking at the teaching is that stillness is the fundamental, the fundamental orientation of all things. All things come from stillness and then die back into stillness. All right? Sound is a vibration that comes out of stillness and then goes back into stillness in silence. So, so silence, stillness, I equate, and they're always in that, uh, always in that same space. What was the second part? <laughs> second part of your question. Forgiveness and questioning and all these teachings. Got it. Okay, so when, when what the stillness ends up showing us is that everything is temporary, that everything is interdependent, that everything is infused with, indeed, the stillness itself. And so what happens is that calls into question every single thing we've always thought was true. And so what this practice really is about is not forgetting or denying everything that you've ever learned, but really letting it all go. So that... um, I remember reading this poem once, I think it was by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's talking about basically this practice is about burning your own house. Totally. And then what's left is what's important. Okay? And he's not talking necessarily about our physical house, although you talk to somebody who's lost every one of their possessions, it's an amazing, it's an amazing dialogue because they tend to be kind of free in a weird way. Right? What about the house that's within? What about all the stories you carry, you know, within? The non-forgiveness that's held, the withholding that you've got. How about burning that? What happens then? Suddenly you are living a question. And this is exactly the way we assume the historical Buddha approached almost all of his teachings. Okay? So that what does stillness do? Stillness fundamentally shakes loose stuff. We begin to slough off the things that we really don't need. Okay? And what's left is this beautiful radiance. And that radiance isn't about knowing stuff. That radiance is not fueled by absolutes and mind grasping, bodily grasping. That radiance is fueled by getting out of its way. And that's done with questions. This is why in Dokusan, whenever I meet with uh, uh, individuals, it's always, I sit there and I wait for a question to be asked. And I'm uh, uh, absolutely, it, it cracks me up because it's usually there's this huge long introduction to the question, which is fine. I mean, I, I'm happy to sit with anybody in any capacity, but oftentimes there's like this giant contextual story that goes on. And the question is, so, so how can I suffer less? 
<laughs> you know? Well, you, you let go. Well, of what? Well, you know that whole story you just told me? That's a really interesting thing. What if that was looser? What if you held on to that? Oh, I, can, I couldn't take... Huh. You know? All right? So what the stillness then ends up showing us, what the silence ends up showing us, is that we got nothing to hang on to. And what, what happens then is we begin to reconfigure life based on not knowing. And there's so much freedom in that. An openness to the chaos. And also this quasi-redefinition of order in life. Our, our entire life becomes an expression of surrender. But it's still got integrity to it. It's still got some spine there. You know? So we begin to enact, I love the metaphor of, we begin to uh, live like a wind bell. A wind bell, you know, that the, uh, the chimes are, they're absolutely upright, but they're hollow. And they respond to the wind, but they also don't give in to the wind. They respond to it. And what comes out of them? Beautiful music. Resonance. Right? That's what we are with each other when other people are doing the same work. We begin to chime. I'm questioning and I'm forgiving. I'm just not sitting. Truth be told, that's why I'm trying to yeah. keep finding oh, that's fine. motivation it, to sit. Right, right. It's the, I will just tell you this. The very thing in you that is uh, unmotivated or is preventing sitting is the very thing in you that will continually prevent any kind of awakening. So you get to a point in practice where you either tip 51% towards this matters or you, you go into doldrums and you stall. And it sucks stalling because you already know too much. So just wait till the pain gets really bad if you want. That's one way of doing it. Okay? Or the other way is just manning up or womaning up and just going for it. You have nothing to lose but everything in a beautiful way. But it's so hard. I mean, you and I, I guarantee you, you are not alone. You know, you're not alone. I mean, sit, nah, well, I'll just show up on Mondays. One word, sleep, and you've said. Yeah. You meditate, and you don't sleep. You don't need sleep. I just. Well, I didn't. I, I don't. I wouldn't say that. You said. I, I would. I, no, I think. I think what I said was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to get uh, defensive. <laughs> it's not that you don't need sleep when you meditate. It's that when you get stage four nourishment, delta waves in your deepest meditation, the quality of your sleep shifts. The number of hours in your sleep shifts. That's definitely true. But it's not like, sit for a morning every day and who needs sleep? No, you either take care, you either take care of your sleep or all, forget about any of this. Also forget about your health. So this becomes secondary or tertiary to the entire experience of being human. I'd take care of your sleep before I'd take care of anything else. Actually, I take care of getting water, getting air. That's the first thing, <laughs> then water. But sleep's not too far. You know, if you're not, whatever practice you have that's getting in the way of, of sound sleep, 
if it's oh it's the dogs that's right because people can at the dog hotel they can they can pay extra and have the dog sleep on your bed is that yeah screw that it's not worth it it's not worth the extra bucks per night yeah yeah I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I, I have no idea. But but the meditation, with that, if this just becomes, if like Infinite Smile or whatever Sangha you're affiliated with simply becomes, you know, hey, let's listen to Baldy. Break out the popcorn and Coca-Cola. I got nothing for you here. <laughs> but the teachings, the teachings are falling on soil that isn't even going to be able to let anything blossom. Without, without the practice, the actual sitting practice, and this goes, this is everybody, without the sitting practice, you are throwing seeds onto bricks. It just does, it can't, you know? Feels like it is. Yeah, something's happening to, because there's, there, grasses can grow in between bricks. <laughs> but we also call those weeds. <laughs> you know, and weeds in their own way are beautiful. <laughs> I love you so much, just so you know. It this this matters. This really matters. And I think there comes a point where it's like you get and and I will share from my own experience. I hit this this point where I had uh you know, had all this great beginner's luck and everything, and then for years I was flatlining. And it's like, what the hell am I doing? trying to get back to something else that brought me this original burst of what felt to be something like freedom. I spent an incredible amount of time just sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting. And then it suddenly just kind of took root on its own in a really bizarre way. It's just what I do. Come hell or high water, it's just what I do. And the minute that happened, the minute I started to like vow that I'm going to live close to this. Everything changed. But it took a lot to get me there. And a lot longer than you have even been sitting in this, this sangha. So, so as much as I love teasing you and everything, it's, it's, this is, it gets to be a very, it's a big question. Are you ready? Do you really want this or no? If you don't, well, you know what? Take a break. You know, or maybe there's something else that will float your boat. The thing that I, when I was in that space, what sucked was that here I am kind of in these doldrums. I was flatlining on this whole experience and I knew I couldn't go back and I wasn't going forward, which is exactly the way the practice is designed to work. It's to get you into a place where I can no longer do what I've been doing before and I have no idea what's out there. Okay, you either jump or you just, it's going to hurt until you're ready to jump. So just choose. Either go for it or just wait until you have to. Either way, it'll take care of itself. <laughs> yeah. Can you follow up? It yeah. sounded like you were going to tell a joke a Buddhist, a Christian, a Jew walking into a locker room. <laughs> Except that's not a joke. It's my reality. I know, I know. <laughs> when you said that, what was the reaction to the two of the, the guys? Oh, it's really, honestly, it's cool. They, they are very, and I think what's, what's neat about it is that none of us talk about the path. 
I don't, there's no way I'm going to start quizzing, you know, a rabbinical scholar on, you know, anything pursuant to, you know, Judaic thought or the Talmud or the, the you know, Torah or whatever. Similarly, I'm not going to go um, to the minister. Who, the guy's just, he's absolutely brilliant. This pastor, I'm not going to start talking Christian scholarship with him, New Testament or Old Testament. I'm just, I'm, and they certainly aren't going to start talking to me about Buddhist scholarship because I don't know Jack, really. <laughs> So, so what is it? We all are then either reduced or enhanced enough to talk about the mountain, not the path. And that's so, it's so cool because we all just kind of walk out of there, you know, either, you know, given a hug or if we're not wearing clothing, it's usually a handshake because that would be too weird. So, uh, but it's always really, I'm, I'm really inspired actually by the stuff that's going on spiritually right here in this community. You got a lot of people that really get it at the big, the big level. And that's, oh God, I just think it's, it's fantastic. You know, it's, uh, it makes me feel good about not only what it is that we're doing here, but what's happening right here when the dynamism of the West meets the peace and wisdom traditions of the East right here right here and guess what we're all talking now we're all talking in ways that we never imagined we would be talking even 30 years ago it's a gift of the net and it's also a gift of openness and it's a gift of i mean i just think the time has come yeah thank you. yeah oh thank you thank you yes so healing is temporary there's nothing that needs to be healed but when you said earlier how, like, I can look out at these trees and I can see things that I truly believed I had experienced, uh-huh. totally letting go, sometimes some of them years ago. Mm-hmm. And I could see them poking their head out at me. That, that these things kind of come back and yeah. say, hey, I'm still here? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, so let's go, let's go back to my flippant comment on healing. Um, from the perspective of awakening, what, what in the infinite needs to be healed? If you are indeed infinite, you are an expression of the infinite, do you need to be healed? No. But there's a facet of your infinite nature on this gem we call you, okay, that's maybe a little bit uh, sullied or, or uh, 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 not so clear because of mind's addiction to itself. Okay, and so what we do in this practice is make sure that we just polish that a little bit more. Okay, or the one I like using most of all is a lampshade that has had years and years of dust and dirt caked on it. It's still emitting light, but now watch, sit still. Whoa, sit still. You keep rotating that thing. You just keep dusting it every single time. You sit still. You rotate the lampshade and dust off a little more, and pretty soon, what do you have? Whoa, right? Okay, and so. That light's always been there. That light has never been anything other than that light. It has never been diminished, not one smidgen, okay? But the mind, addicted to itself, addicted to its stories, always rehashing, it keeps looking at these little things that keep popping up their heads, saying, I got to do something. But the intensity is is not anything what it was. It doesn't grasp and create the anxiety and the stress but it just kind of 
it's almost like you say, you, you stand back and you go, oh, you're there again. Yep. And so what am I to learn now? What more am I to question? Or is it, it's never ever going to be totally gone. There's always going to be that piece of you that is going to go, but you could have done that differently. Or you could have given that person another chance. Or maybe you should have opened up the door, you know. And even, hey, even, critic. Say that again. Hey, critic. How you doing? <laughs> Good to see you, old friend. <laughs> it's just an old friend. <laughs> you know? Snake rearing its ugly head. Or its beautiful, beautiful mm -hmm. head. It's, it's a perspectival shift. It's not a perspectival. I mean, it's not like, it's, so there's no, there's nothing. It's that we no longer see them as snakes. They're third graders. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. the, little, the little demons that we used to have suddenly transform into third graders. Mm -hmm. It's a hell of a lot easier to be really loving towards a third grader as opposed to some type of strange gremlin we have, you know? And they're not gremlins. They're just mm -hmm. stories we've written. Oh, you could have done... Oh, critic. Mm -hmm. Dude! Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? That type, of, that type of shift does amazing stuff for the people that we touch, too. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else getting eaten by mosquitoes? Man, I'm going to be itching. I need to eat more garlic. Thank you so much for coming tonight.